Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to the FT's US Election Countdown podcast. I'm Ed Crooks in New York. Well, the countdown is, of course, finally over. Donald Trump shook the political establishment and clinched the White House victory in the small hours of Wednesday morning. With me in the FT's New York newsroom to discuss this and more is Courtney Weaver, our political correspondent, who was at the Javits Center on Tuesday night awaiting Hillary Clinton, and Sam Fleming, our economics editor, who was at Trump headquarters in Midtown, and also Adam Sampson, who was here in the newsroom watching the markets all night. Sam, uh, perhaps to start with you, what was it like on Tuesday night? What was the uh, what was the mood in the Trump camp, and what happened as the results came in? The Trump supporters turning up at the uh, Midtown Hilton last night initially seemed fairly tentative in terms of what they were expecting. You didn't have the sense of a bunch of supporters who were expecting huge a huge result. Most of those who I did speak to were talking about it being a close battle, even if they were confident that Mr. Trump would ev- eventually prevail. Um, but it was really the, uh, the initial uh, signs that he was edging ahead in Florida uh, around 8.30 that changed the mood in the, in the ballroom where he finally made his acceptance speech in the wee hours of Wednesday morning. That's, that started to usher a real sense of that some history was potentially being made, uh, and that ebullient mood only grew and grew as the evening progressed. And then presumably it looked definite what, when the Midwestern states went, when, when you saw Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, how they were going and breaking for Trump, that I guess really sealed it. Well, it did, although there was obviously this, this period uh, in the early hours when John Podesta, the chairman of the Clinton campaign, uh, said that they weren't ready to uh, concede because the count was still ongoing. And that did provoke some uh, frustration among uh, Trump supporters who felt it was basically in the bag, even if uh, there weren't formal uh, formal numbers out. Um, but that, that hiatus didn't actually last that long. And when it became clear then that uh, uh, Donald Trump had won, what was the mood like? Was it Jubilation? Were people shocked? I mean, had they, as he said, they were, they hadn't necessarily expected that at the beginning of the evening. There was, yeah, I think there was an air of disbelief, um, an amazement. They really, a lot of people there just didn't expect this to happen. And if you looked at the polling in advance of the uh, election, really none of the pollsters expected it. All of the various model prediction models gave very high odds on Hillary Clinton uh, winning. So I think um, jubilation is probably the right word. So, uh, Courtney, turning to you then, very different mood, presumably, at the, uh, the Clinton camp yes. uh, at the Javits Center. Uh, I mean, if, if Trump supporters were shocked, I would say Clinton supporters were shell-shocked. This was not the night they had imagined. Uh, you know, they were tempting fate being under this literal glass ceiling at the Javits Center. I mean, they thought this was their night. And you could really you know, see this clear change in mood among the Clinton camp in these final days. You know, Clinton herself appeared exuberant. You know, we saw her smiling, laughing. She appeared at this huge 30,000-person rally in Philadelphia with John Bon Jovi, the Obamas. Um, And throughout the day on Tuesday, her campaign had been telegraphing her movements. They were talking about what she and Bill Clinton were eating for dinner. They were talking about the victory outfit that her granddaughter Charlotte had on. 
And then, you know, and earlier in the evening, you had people like Brian Fallon, her spokesman, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who's the former head of the Democratic National Committee. They were kind of swanning around the halls and talking to reporters, you know, and just projecting this unbridled optimism. And then very, very suddenly around 10 p.m. when results from Virginia started coming in and Michigan, suddenly something changed dramatically. And all these Clinton aides disappeared from the hall. And we just had radio silence from them for hours up until, you know, shortly before 2 a.m. when John Podesta came to speak. And again, what really seemed to to seal the deal then with those uh, crucial Midwestern states, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, had the Clinton camp then just completely misread those states? They just had no idea what was really going on. So I've been talking to Clinton pollsters today, and I mean, they just said their internal polling was wrong. And actually, if you talk to some of the Trump internal pollsters, too, they also said that their, you know, polling was not showing him getting such a big victory. Uh, So the big question is, how did all these pollsters miss it, obviously? Um, when one pollster I was talking to from the Clinton camp was saying he thought there was a shift in the final week and that they just hadn't caught the shift towards Trump. Um, he thought that momentum had shifted towards Trump because of things like the WikiLeaks emails that were, you know, John Podesta's hacked emails that have been released by WikiLeaks um, and also the new FBI probe. Um, and there had been this shift that somehow they had missed. A lot of rebuilding now to do for the Democratic Party, obviously. Any sense at all, any ideas or thoughts about how they might be planning to do that? Well, I was talking to one Clinton supporter last night uh, on election night, and she was saying, you know, look at 2008. Uh, Obama won the White House. The Democrats took the House. They took the Senate. And then within two years, you had the Tea Party and this complete revolt on the Republican side. And, you know, over the past eight years, Republicans have taken back power. Um, So I think they're seeing a similar scenario on the Democratic side, whether that's harnessing the supporters of Bernie Sanders and trying to get that, that spirit into the Democratic Party. I mean, I think there will be essays and books written about all the mistakes of the Clinton campaign. I mean, it's just truly extraordinary that you had this campaign that was so well-funded, so well-organized, had the ground game, you know, been preparing for this for years and still managed to have this clear defeat. So now on Wednesday, the day after, we're starting to get some of the the details coming through about who voted and how they voted. What are the big kind of uh, developments there? And what have they been perhaps the surprising things that meant we came out with such an unexpected result? I mean, I think the biggest takeaway from this election is this was a change election and Donald Trump was the change candidate. And I think going into the election, a lot of people thought that identity politics would trump voters' uh, desire for to see a better economy, to see to see change in the country. Um, and in reality, we, we didn't see that. We didn't see, you know, white women come out and vote for Hillary Clinton in larger numbers than Donald Trump because they obviously thought his comments towards women were less important than his his policies. And the same token, you have Hispanic voters voting for Donald Trump in higher numbers than they did for Mitt Romney, which is just extraordinary. And was that something really then that the Clinton campaign got wrong, that they banked on, as you say, that kind of identity politics that didn't really materialize? Yeah, I think I think political strategists would also say, for most of the general election, they ran an anti-campaign, right? They showed that Hillary Clinton was not, she was the anti-Donald Trump rather than putting out their own message, putting out their own strategy. You saw that in the beginning when, you know, she struggled to come up with an effective campaign slogan that you could put on a bumper sticker. Um, Jillian Tett, our colleague, has pointed out that, you know, her, her slogan she ended up with, Stronger Together, you know, it's a message of stasis and, you know, Make America Great Again. It's this, you know, message of movement and transformation. Um, and I don't think we can underestimate that. Stronger Together was also the slogan of the failed Remain campaign to keep Britain in the European Union as well, wasn't it? So that should have been probably taken as a bad omen. And, and Sam, from the, uh, from the Trump campaign's point of view, were there particular uh, segments of the voting population that they were targeting and particular segments they did better with perhaps than they expected? 
the Trump campaign clearly was very focused on um, particularly white uh, working class voters. Um, uh, they did do well among um, uh, white voters without a college education, but that was by no means the only uh, segment of the population that they did. I realize that, uh, um, that they did well in Hillary Clinton very narrowly won the, the overall popular vote, but an awful lot of people voted for Donald Trump as well. So uh, it's, it's not fair to say that uh, his support was confined to one tiny stratum of uh, of American society by any means. I think also if you look at the Trump campaign's movements in the final days of the campaign, uh, you know, people had kind of poo-pooed them for having, you know, a non-existent ground game, for not really having good data operations. But they were the ones who spotted that Michigan was really, you know, going to be a turning point, And they sent him there. That was his final rally on Monday night right before the campaign. That's a huge credit to them that they were able to spot this and able to actually act on it. And that was probably the state that actually sealed the deal. That was the one yeah, that finally exactly. pushed over 270 electoral college votes. And that was considered, you know, a, a relatively safe democratic state that was part of Clinton's blue firewall. I went up to Michigan um, early this year, and at the time I really was struck, don't want to be harsh, but by the complacency, uh, particularly of the unions uh, in Michigan, the sense that really they... They were fairly confident that their union, uh, that union, mem- union members, for example, in the auto industry, which is so important in Michigan, were in the bag, and they would see the arguments in favour of uh, Hillary Clinton um, after you know the normal the normal campaigning by the unions. Um, and when I spoke to union members, a lot of them were very excited indeed about uh, Donald Trump, and some of the members who'd been interested in Bernie Sanders when Sanders dropped out were by no means saying they wanted to go straight over to Hillary Clinton. They saw in some ways much more um, appeal in Donald Trump um, as Bernie Sanders supporters than Hillary Clinton herself. And I think it's worth pointing out that Michigan was also arguably the biggest surprise of the primary. You had Bernie Sanders win the Democratic primary there. He hadn't been expecting it. The Clinton campaign hadn't been expecting it. He actually wasn't even planning to give a speech that night because he thought he had lost it. Um, and so it's kind of, you know, telling, I think, that Michigan both decided, you know, was such a huge night in the primary and in the general election. Adam, don't you just think about the markets then. So this extraordinary shift in fortunes of, of the two uh, parties, of the, the two contenders for president, um, mirrored in a wild ride in the markets, right? Yeah. So to borrow Courtney's phrase, uh, I think markets are certainly shell-shocked um, by the term events last night. Uh, the peso, which is the Mexican peso that is, uh, which has garnered quite a bit of attention, uh, plummeted almost 12%, one of its biggest falls on record. Uh, S&P 500 futures were down 5%. Uh, that kicked in trading curbs meant to sort of uh, stop panicky selling. Really quite a wild night for the markets. Um, but then things have completely shifted today. Um, last I looked, stocks were actually rising. Um, investor sentiment definitely, if not bullish, is definitely a lot less cautious. Um, you know, some of the sectors that we thought would rise, perhaps if Trump won, are definitely rising. Uh, for instance, pharmaceutical and biotech shares are posting a very good day. Um, interestingly, financial stocks uh, are also performing quite well on expectations, perhaps, that he would loosen uh, Wall Street regulations. Um, there have been some fears that perhaps financials would actually fall if Trump won because it could tighten financial conditions and cause the Fed to push back rate rises. That hasn't quite materialized. Also, quite interestingly, Treasury yields are rising quite sharply. The 10-year yield is up uh, the most in about three years as inflation expectations are rising um, amid expectations that uh, Mr. Trump may push for quite expansionary fiscal policies, which you know, is a totally fascinating turn for the markets in the uh, you know, last 12 hours or so. Yeah, I want to bring in, actually, uh, 
Simon Courtney maybe in a moment on that point about uh, fiscal policy and interest rates. But just before we get off the markets, it was absolutely amazing. So I left the office at about four o'clock this morning, maybe half past three, and the world was in meltdown. It was kind of disaster. Trump's uh, going to be president. It's the end of the world. Chaos, mayhem. I came back into the office, let's say about five hours later, and oh, everything's fine. It'll be, you know, no problem at all. Uh, it's all going to be okay. Do you have any sense of why uh, markets views whipsawed so sharply so quickly? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with uncertainty. Um, you know, initially it seemed like it could be very close, potentially. It wasn't clear um, if uh, Hillary Clinton would concede when she would concede, that sort of thing. And since then, you know, of course, she called to concede last night. She made a speech today. Donald Trump made a speech that was actually calling for unity. Things like that, I think, have really helped uh, ease anxiety. And also, you know, I think as people have had a chance to really think about it, they're taking a more nuanced approach. Instead of saying everything's bad, they're saying, well, you know, maybe good for some things and less good for other things. I think one thing the Trump campaign has tried to do, especially in the final 24 hours before the vote, is, you know, reassure reassure the markets that they are going to bring experienced people onto the campaign. It's too early to talk about people filling potential roles, but they were mentioning names like Rudy Giuliani and Newt Gingrich, um, you know, right before the campaign ended. And I think that's just... I mean, they realize that markets are on edge and they don't want to cause any panic. Sam, maybe just to bring you in finally, you're the economics guru here. What's your take on the the macroeconomic implications of a Trump presidency? It seems to be he's very keen on large tax cuts. He's not very keen on large spending cuts. Put those two things together, it looks like there could be quite a significant fiscal stimulus. Do you think that's the way things are going to go? Well, whether he gets the fiscal stimulus is, is is one question. And I think that depends very much on the composition of uh, the mood of Congress and the Republicans in Congress, uh, most of whom are certainly not uh, Keynesians by any means. It's quite bizarre, really, to find the markets uh, seeing Mr. Trump as a, as a fiscal expansionary um, guy. But if you look at the plans he put forward during uh, the campaign, they would lead to multi-trillion dollar blowouts in the national debt, because as you say, they've been unfunded uh, tax cuts. Um, He's, I think the particular focus at the moment is on infrastructure spending, uh, the view that um, there is appetite in Congress for an infrastructure package. Now, Mr. Trump has never been very uh, specific about how he'd fund it, but he has floated the idea this could be funded through debt. Um, some of his advisors don't seem to too adverse to the idea. I spoke to one advisor today who was talking about how low the national debt is as a share of GDP, an extraordinary (laughs) thing to hear given what you've heard during the campaign (laughs) about uh, Barack Obama presiding over $19 trillion US national debt. So it tells you just uh, what's going on behind the scenes right now. The problem was he presided over a $19 trillion national debt, and that wasn't enough. That was clearly <laughs> the, the, uh, the implicit assumption. The big. And to be clear then, so when you talk about in, uh, infrastructure spending financed by debt, that's by, financed by public debt, not by private debt. Obviously, Mr. Trump has got an uh, impressive record with private debt. Um, it's a subject he knows a great deal about. But no, you, you, this would be, the idea is this would be actually government financing, government spending. We, we don't know. I, I was just struck by this advisor saying that um, the national debt isn't that high as a share of GDP. So that would imply, that would be one possible implication uh, from that. Um, They also talk about public-private partnerships, so getting private investment in, but the PPP does involve a government component as well. I don't think really there's any fully formed notion at all about what we're talking about at this stage. Um, But I think what you can say is that Democrats have an appetite for infrastructure, Republicans, uh, some of them do, Donald Trump certainly does. So that's one area of focus, I think, in the first 100 days of a Trump administration. 
Yeah, certainly that is going to be a fascinating subject, I think, to follow as the Trump presidency takes shape and his uh, relations with Congress over those plans in particular. It's going to be a great thing to watch and hopefully we'll be back with further podcasts to discuss them in the future. Um, <laughs> Sam Fleming, Courtney Weaver, Adam Samson, thank you very much indeed. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.